Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Thomas Tallhelm, an associate professor of behavioral science from the Booth School of Business. Professor Tallhelm studies how culture affects the way people behave. He has also lived and taught in China. Professor Tallhelm is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. So, Thomas, this is a big question, but can you just give me a general overview of your career path from the time that you were an undergrad all the way to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago? So when I was young, I knew I really liked languages. I loved being in Spanish class and and learning Spanish. And when I got to college, I just decided to explore more languages. So I I started studying Japanese. Um, I studied Portuguese as well. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do something that allows me to use language. So I thought I would go into like international relations or something that would allow me to use Spanish and any other languages that I was learning. So I took an international relations course and I thought it was so boring. (laughs) Sorry to anybody in that field, but it just was not interesting to me (laughs) at all. So I like kind of struggled to, to decide where to go next. After that, A friend of mine gave me a sociology book. It was about sort of how American culture is all about like voyeurism and watching other people. And the lens that that gave me was like, it might sound obvious, but the idea that our culture is giving us these influences that we're not aware of, that would be shaping how we view the world, that was all felt really fresh and interesting and new to me. It wasn't something that I'd considered in my life very deeply before that. So I thought, oh, maybe sociology is what I want to study. So I took a sociology class after that. And I then took a psychology class. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's sort of the sweet spot. I like the precision of psychology, the, the ability to run experiments and, and make progress, uh, you know, to sort of definitively say, you know, we, we randomize people to do this or that, and now we have an answer. So that was sort of what got me onto, onto psychology. And then I knew I wanted to study abroad. So I started looking into study abroad programs and I found that there was a program where you could be a research assistant on professors projects in other countries and they would pay you. And so I thought that was like from negative to positive because study abroad is really expensive, but this was like study abroad, but you got paid. Uh, so I thought that was awesome. So I applied for that program and I asked to go to a couple of Spanish speaking countries where they had projects. And a month later, I got a letter in the mail that said, congratulations, you're going to Beijing. And I had no background in China or really anything related to that, but they were paying the bills. So I, I went to China and it turns out that studying Chinese was a lot of fun. And China is like amazing place to explore. There's so much to do. It was so different. I really just really just loved it and had just had so much fun learning this entirely different language. So I went back to China after I graduated. I taught high school through a program called Princeton in Asia, which is open to Princeton students and, and non-Princeton students as well. And then I taught, or I was a freelance journalist for a year. I lived in Beijing and I, I wrote news articles and stuff like that, magazine articles. And it was sort of that experience. If, if I weren't an academic, if I weren't a researcher, I would I feel like I would probably be a journalist because it's somewhat similar in that it's, you know, exploring ideas and learning things and communicating things. But working as a journalist for a while taught me that 
I really liked the depth that I could get as a researcher. So like rather than, you know, hearing what one expert says and then another expert says and then kind of throwing up my hands or, you know, saying somebody thinks that and somebody thinks that. I often wanted to say like, no, but who's, who's right? Or, or, or what does the data say? I and mean, what, what's the actual answer here? So going into research to me felt like it gave me a lot more freedom to be able to spend as much time as I thought I needed to really find the answer. Whereas as a journalist, I, I loved being a journalist and it was, it was a lot of fun, but I, my incentives were not to dig deeply. I was not being incentivized to find out the full story for my articles because time is money and I was being paid by the word. <laughs> so, you know, doing an extra two days of research to, to add an extra paragraph to my story was going to mean that I wasn't going to be able to pay my rent that month. So that was sort of what shifted me from, or, or made me more certain that I wanted to go into to research. So after being a freelance journalist, I went to a PhD program at the University of Virginia for social psychology. And my experience in China informed a lot of my research interests. So I, I ended up researching a lot having to do with culture. So after finishing my PhD at the University of Virginia, I joined the behavioral science area at the Booth School at the University of Chicago. And so now I'm a professor there. And the behavioral science area at Booth is sort of a combination of social psychology and also people with an economics background that are asking essentially social psychology questions. So that's pretty much how I got to to where I am today. And Thomas, I also want to ask you, it sounds like you started a business in China or related to China. Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I was on a Fulbright scholarship. So the, the Fulbright program sent me to live in China for a year. And I was living in China doing my research. And the air pollution, I mean, the air pollution in China has been bad for, for many years. But in, in that winter in Beijing, it got particularly bad. People called it the airpocalypse. It was so, 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 so bad. I mean, looking down the alley, the, you know, the alley where I lived in, in Beijing, you could just see it in the air, even just 10 feet in front of you. I mean, normally you have to like stand on a building or look through, look a, across a long distance to be able to see how bad the air is. But this was like, no, about five feet in front of your face and you can see it. <laughs> so it's really, really bad. And the first step is like, okay, well, I guess I'll buy an air purifier. And I went out to, you know, buy an air purifier that, that was available on the market. And the one that everybody was buying, at least among expats in China, was this one that cost like $2,000. And the cheap one, there was another brand. Uh, this one was, so the, the really expensive one was from Switzerland. There's another one from Sweden. The cheap one was $800. And it just seemed to me like that seems wrong. Why is this thing so expensive? Is there some sort of technology in that box? I mean, to to me, a psychologist who doesn't really know anything about filtering air. It seems like there's like it's just a box that you plug in and you push a button and then clean air comes out. And so I trust that there's some sort of fancy technology in there that's producing this. But but really, I, I mean, a thousand dollars. So I, I looked into it and I started you know applying my research skills to the question of you know air filter air filtration. And it turns out, I mean, first of all, this is not a hidden secret. I mean, it's not hard. And when I say research, I mean, I basically started on the Wikipedia page for, you know, air filters. And it takes less than an hour to discover that, for example, the, the key ingredient in most air purifiers is a HEPA filter. And those were invented in the 1940s. 
they're just made out of plastic fibers. Like if you have a synthetic shirt or synthetic sheets on your bed, same, same sort of thing. They're not patented because they were made 70 years ago. Anybody can make them. So if it's a fan and a filter, why is that costing a thousand dollars? So I basically just started making my own. I, I was living in China, so I figured HEPA filters would be manufactured there. So I bought a HEPA filter from a factory, cost $15. And then I had a fan at home, which again, costs about $15. And I just strapped the filter to the fan and I started using it every day in my bedroom. And within a week or so, it the filter was black. And so I was like, okay, this seems to be working a little bit. But maybe I could be more rigorous about this. So I, I bought a laser particle counter. It's a machine that can detect really small particles in the air. Funnily enough, the DIY air purifier cost me about $30 to make. The laser particle counter to test the purifier cost $300. <laughs> so I was spending 10 times as much just to, just to be able to prove that it worked. But I started doing these tests in my bedroom in Beijing. And eventually I you know, had enough data, you know, filmed some tests and I started publishing stuff online. I just started a blog and, and said, Hey world, you, you don't need to spend a thousand dollars. Here's how you can do it yourself. And here's how, and things kind of snowballed from there. I mean, eventually news outlets started to pick this up and write stories about this and you know, newspapers and magazines and stuff. And then soon I started hosting educational workshops where I would teach people you know, how air purifiers works. And then I would, you know, I, I bought you know, 20 fans and 20 filters and 20 Velcro straps. And we all just built them together. I showed people how to build them and then they'd walk home with their own air purifier. And so, I mean, I thought that was like pretty awesome and was kind of sticking it to the large companies like, you know, hey, you're charging a thousand dollars for this. This is what I made for 30, 30 bucks. But soon I learned that there's a lot of people out there who you can tell them how to build this, but they're not really going to build it. Like maybe 1% of people are actually going to go to the trouble of building it. So my friends and I just, decided that we would start strapping them together ourselves and selling them directly to people. So we would just DIY the purifiers ourselves in, in, a, in an apartment and then ship them directly to people for 200 RMB. It was about $30 in China. And that was it. Uh, we called it Smart Air, very basic sort of company. We consider it a social enterprise. I mean, it's registered as a social enterprise because it's the goal is to, to help people and to basically correct the market to make air purifiers that aren't about tricking people and that aren't about, you know, basically lying to people to, to make them to spend a fortune just to protect their health. And so, that, yeah, that was basically the start of it. And then over the years, we've shifted from, you know, making these strapped together things in, in an apartment in Beijing to having finished products that are the same, uh, built around the same sort of ethos. So uh, open data, open testing, you know, here's, here's how they work. Here's how you can build your own. But if you want something that's a little bit easier, here's a purifier that we designed. And the whole idea is low cost, simple, no gimmicks. Just here's an air purifier. It works, it protects your health. Here's the data. And uh, if you want to build one yourself, here's how. We'll teach you how. If you want to buy one, here's here's one. And yeah, so now we're, so we started in China, moved into India, the Philippines. Now we're you know, in the UK, in the US and many countries around the world. Wow, amazing. What a story. So <laughs> jumping back to your life as an academic, why did you want to be an academic versus do something like this full time? 
I guess I never really knew about Smart Air because that was a complete accident. It's funny because I talked to my MBA students, many of whom have this idea that they want, they start with the idea of wanting to start a business, but don't know what to do. And I was the opposite. I did not have any plans to start a business, but I had a problem to solve. And so I feel like that's perhaps one lesson about one path to starting a business is, is try to find that problem. So starting with a problem to solve in your own life is one sort of path to starting a business. Why did I want to get into research? I think I just really liked the idea of, of exploring things and, and finding the answers to, to things. And I feel like if you look into a lot of academic fields when you're young, it seems like older people or adults, like a lot of people know things. And when you actually start asking questions, you realize there's actually a ton of really basic stuff that people don't know. Even if I can get into the business world of, of like the air purifiers and, and sort of really basic questions. When I started Smart Air, when we were designing DIY air purifiers, I put the filter on the front of the fan. When I started showing people the design and, you know, hey, this is the thing I built. There were a bunch of people who were like, oh, you idiot, you should put the filter on the back. Of course, it should go on the back of the fan like where the air comes from. And over the years, I've talked to experts, I've talked to industrial design companies that design air purifiers, and they put the filter on the, on the back, like where the air comes in. But then I asked them, like, why is that? I mean, do you have any data? I mean, has anybody ever tested this? And the answer is no, nobody ever tested this. Like, nobody's ever really demonstrated that, that it should be done one way or another. People just, when, when I, ask the design team that, that I hired to help me build a professional air purifier. It turns out their process was basically to look at how the other air purifiers on the market were doing it and just do it like they did it. Right. Uh, but it, it shocked me that like really basic questions about the design of things, you know, whether that's an air purifier, whether that's about how the human mind works or how cultures are different. There's just so many really basic questions that we, we don't have the answer to. So that contrast of like being a kid and thinking that adults know all the answers, like they don't. <laughs> and, and so you can find those answers. There's still a lot of really amazing, interesting, totally not nitpicky or niche or unimportant questions. There are so many really basic, important questions that we just don't have the answers to. So I, I think that's one super appealing thing about research. Well, tell me about your research. What are you interested in? Yeah. So the basic question I'm interested in is how are people different across cultures and why are cultures different? So one of my big projects has been to research different cultures in China. So when I was teaching high school in China on the, the Princeton and Asia program, I was teaching in the south of China in a city called Guangzhou. It's not far from Hong Kong in the south of China. And living in the south of China, it felt to me like People were often sort of shy around strangers, um, tried to be really polite, like self-censoring. Like if I, if I have something to say, oh, but maybe it's going to offend you. So maybe I'll just not tell you that because I don't want to hurt the relationship, that sort of thing. And then I was a freelance journalist in Beijing, which is in the North. And to me, it was like, wow, it's so different. I mean, I would often eat in restaurants alone, uh, mostly because I, I didn't cook for myself in China. And so when I was in the North in Beijing, if I was eating alone, maybe like 20, 30% of the time, a stranger would just come up to me and start talking. Are you going home for Chinese New Year? Or do you fly? Like, how much does a flight cost? 
that sort of thing. Whereas in, in the South, like that almost never happened. And it was interesting to me to see these large differences. I mean, I think to, to most Americans or perhaps a lot of people around the world, China is this like really sort of unified conformist culture where, you know, everybody's the same, but living on the ground, that was very much not the case. I mean, Guangzhou and Beijing seemed super different to me. So I was really fascinated as to why, you know, first of all, are my observations true at all? I mean, am I observing something true or is this just, am I just making these things up? And second of all, why would these areas be different? And so I ended up taking a, a class on dialects in China. And our professor showed us a map of some small sort of unimportant dialectical difference between different versions of uh, or variations of, of Chinese. And he showed us this map. And it was basically a clear dividing line in the middle of China along the Yangtze River. Like north of that river, people said this thing this way south of the river they said it this other way and i was like oh i bet that's i bet that line is corresponding to these cultural differences that i'm feeling and observing across china and i got to find out what that line represented historically and it turns out that that line is basically the dividing line between where people have farmed rice versus wheat so in southern china people have farmed rice for thousands of years and in the north, they farmed wheat and, and other crops like you know, corn and, and soybeans and things like that more recently. And it turns out that, that farming rice is an activity that really connects people and it makes them dependent upon each other. For example, rice re relies on irrigation networks. And it means that farmers have to flood and drain their fields at the same time. Like you, you can't make that decision yourself. You need to coordinate that with the farmers around you. Whereas in the north, they're relying on the rain and it rains when it rains. I don't need to cooperate or coordinate or take your feelings or opinions into account. And so it seemed to me like there was this large consistency between the way that people were making a living for thousands of years and how people were behaving around other people in the modern day. So I call it the rice theory. The idea is that rice has been a formative crop in Southern China and, and also other parts of East Asia, South Korea, Japan. Thailand, uh, Vietnam, for example. And that rice basically makes cultures more in interdependent. People have to rely on each other more and they have to coordinate with the people around them. Whereas Northern China is, is sort of a little bit more freewheeling. It's a, it's a wheat farming culture like, like most of Western Europe was historically. And so it's a little bit more independent, individualistic, outgoing, um, sort of freewheeling. People kind of let, let their opinions fly a little bit more direct communication. And so a lot of my research has been exploring these cultural differences. So first it's documenting, yes, there are cultural differences between Northern and Southern China. And those cultural differences are not sort of randomly distributed. They fall along the historical lines of farming rice and farming wheat. So where people have grown up in China, is it a rice province? Is it a wheat province? And if so, that's related to things like how they behave around strangers or or their thought style, or their attitudes towards family, or how loyal they need to be to their friends versus do I just tell them like it is? That's, that's a general flavor of, of questions that I'm interested in. So how are cultures different? And then why are cultures different? Like where do these cultural differences come from? I don't, I don't think they just get plopped down from the sky. I think they come from somewhere historically.
And so farming styles is, is one source of those cultural differences. Thomas, you sound like someone who's really passionate about the work that you do. So I'm curious, what are your least favorite aspects of this job? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of the sort of unpaid peer review journal stuff can be can be kind of a drag. The biggest challenge that researchers face on a sort of day-to-day basis is getting articles past the peer review and then and then published. And the problem is I think a lot of peer reviewers are trying to they have a hat on. They're serving in the role of a peer reviewer so I I must be nitpicky and make sure that everything's perfect. But I think the problem is that a, a lot of times the things that a peer reviewer cares about, the eventual reader or scientists in general, and, and even that same peer reviewer, when they have taken off the hat of being a peer reviewer, those people don't care about those questions anymore. And so it can be somewhat tedious to try to solve really nitpicky, low probability quibbles with research that, that don't actually answer important questions and, and aren't going to matter in the end end product. And so a lot of times I feel like the process of peer review is to try to hold on to the football really tightly and and prevent the sort of nitpicky stuff from weighing down the paper, bogging it down with these like needless analyses that like make some sense and have some small purpose, but actually sort of make the paper sort of bloated and, and just worse in the end. So that, that can be a little bit tedious. It's It's really fun to read you know, engaging exploratory research, it can be less fun to to deal with like nitpicky, you know, questions uh, that that aren't really going to matter in the in the big picture. And so, on the flip side of that, what is the most gratifying thing about your job? Yeah. So one thing I'll say is that it's, and and one thing I like about Booth in particular is is that you get com- we get complete academic freedom to study whatever we want. I don't have to publish specifically in business journals. doesn't have to be relevant to business. I started a business, but was not really hired because, because of that. I think most of the people on the hiring committee d- didn't know that. And, and if I can sneak in one more thing, I think one of the things that's the most sort of emotionally fun or, or, or really captivating about doing research, it's that moment when I'm giving a talk and I'm saying, you know, here's, here's what people think, but here's, here's what's actually happening. And when I see the slow head nod, I see the one or two or maybe three people in the audience who are like slowly nodding their head. And, and I think what they're feeling in that moment is something like, yes, like this is something like this is putting words to something that I felt, but never articulated before. And so to be able to, to spark that moment in other people. It feels so good. I mean, that's my favorite thing about seeing research or learning about research. Like when I was taking Psych 101, that was my slow head nods were like, those are my favorite moments about getting into psychology. And so to be able to give a talk and to see that slow head nod, it, that feels really cool. When, when somebody's connecting like that and their, their world is, is slightly changing, that's really fun. That's probably the best moment. 
I've been speaking with Professor Thomas Tallhelm. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening. Thank you.